So I think the task of philosophy, and life for that matter, is the appropriating of one's past in, the, in a way that can be creative for, for a meaningful future. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode eight, where I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author John Keg. John Keg is professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and is the author of American Philosophy, a Love Story, published in October by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which was recently named a New York Times Editor's Choice and one of the best books of 2016 by National Public Radio. His writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Harper's, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. I hope you enjoy our interview as much as I did. All right, everyone, thanks for joining me. My name is John Monaster. I am here with John Keg, and this is the Read, Learn, Live podcast. John, say hello. Hi, thanks for having me, John. Thanks for joining me. Very excited to be here in Boston. I'm up here in Boston interviewing John about his amazing book, American Philosophy, A Love Story, here in my right hand. Excellent, excellent book. So, John, here's the fun question that you've never heard before. Why don't you just summarize the book for us real quick? Sure, no problem. So, um, I guess I'll start by saying um, just a little bit about uh, what motivated the book, and you'll get a sense of the book's arc in a second. But... Um, in 1895, William James, who was regarded as the father of American philosophy, walked across Harvard Yard um, to give a lecture. Um, and the lecture was entitled, Is Life Worth Living? And usually people think of this as like a mutually exclusive, uh, and you know, the answer is mutually exclusive, yes or no. But James said, maybe, maybe life is worth living. It depends, according to James, on the liver. And I really thought that this was a complete cop-out for most of my life. Um, I thought it, 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 the, the answer was automatically yes, all the time, every day of the week, including Sundays. <laughs> and, um, it, it, and I didn't really get James's maybe until 2009 um, when I was at Harvard investigating uh, the philosophy of William James and looking for the origins of American philosophy on a postdoc. And in 2009, my father, who um, we had always been distant, he died. And I had the um, experience of watching him die. And then um, during that time, I was going through a bit of a crisis, not a bit, a serious crisis. Um, and the marriage that was sort of floundering really took a downturn. And I went through a divorce or began to go through a divorce. So James's maybe made a lot more sense then. And um, I didn't find what I was looking for at Harvard, the origins of American philosophy, but I found it the next fall, or began to find it the next fall when I came across, very unexpectedly, a library um, up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which provided an escape for me from my Boston life and the crumbling marriage that I was leaving. And um, the story, American Philosophy, a love story, is really the story of a lost person, a lost library, and a lost philosophical tradition, and the sort of simultaneous recovery of all three. Wow, that's very intense, and I, and I think very meaningful. So I appreciate that introduction. So I guess you kind of went to this library, you were going through a lot in your life. Why did you decide to write it write this book, write this in this way. You know, this book is kind of a blend of American philosophy as well as other philosophy, as well as your own personal story, kind of a blend between a memoir and a, and a philosophical uh, exploration. So why did you decide to write it like this? Sure. So American philosophy is unique, I think, in the sense that um, it requires philosophy to be deeply personal. So in Walden, uh, Henry David Thoreau says that most philosophy um, has erred by avoiding the word I. Mm. And Thoreau says he will not make this error. The I will always be present. Um, and I think that um, I took that pretty seriously 
Um, and it was also an inescapable part of finding a library that was full of philosophy. Um, so this library that I discovered was owned by William Ernest Hawking, uh, William James's last student at Harvard, one of James's last students at Harvard. Um, and I came across this library because because I was it's sort of um, I look back on it and I think how how the hell did this happen? But I I came across this library um, in the fall of 2009. Um, I was helping organize a conference up in Chicago in New Hampshire, which was William James's summer summer town, or he had his summer home there. And I bumped into a 91 year old guy by the name of Bun Nickerson. Um, up in Chikorua. And Bun asked me what I did. I said sort of sheepishly that I was a philosopher. And he said, oh, I knew a philosopher. I used to live on a philosopher's land. And I, I said, well, Bun, could you please uh, tell me what philosopher that was? He goes, yeah, it was William Ernest Hawking. And my jaw sort of just dropped because mm-hmm. uh, Hawking had been James's student. And I said, Bun, could you take me up to this library that you talk about that's on this uh, estate? And he said, there's a library up there. And he did. He put me in his Dodge pickup truck and we bounced up the hill to this um, place called Westwind. And Westwind was William Ernest Hawking's estate. Um, And he had built a freestanding, non-winterized library that housed about 15,000 books. And in the process of exploring that library, and I guess we can talk about the contents of the library a little bit later, but in the process of, of exploring that library over two years... I came to realize that American philosophy was, by its very nature, deeply personal, and that it could affect a life very immediately. In fact, it could save a life. And um, that's sort of what I discovered. That, I mean, one, one of the things I discovered there, I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more. So this was probably, I'm going to guess, a difficult book to write. I mean, what was your, what was your writing process? How, how did you sit down and actually make this book happen? Sure. I guess I have to uh, say a little bit more about the book and then eventually we'll get to the point where I started writing the book because I wrote the book after the fact. Uh-huh. I, the entire experience of discovering the library, discovering its contents, visiting the library repeated, you know, repeatedly, and then eventually bringing my colleague, Dr. Carol Hay, up with me to investigate the library um, this was all just an experience that I was having, and only after the fact did I did I sort of think, oh, this is actually a book. Huh. So, what happened um, the first day that I arrived at Westwind was um, the door to the um, library. Nobody was around. The Hawkings no longer lived there all year round. They only lived there um, during the summer. It was fall, and um, the door to the library was open, or at least unlocked. And I let myself in uh, that first day uh, when Bun took me up. And inside um, the library, what happened um, when William James died and when Josiah Royce, the idealist at Harvard, died is that their books had to go somewhere. And a lot of those books, William James's books, the father of American philosophy, um, a lot of his books ended up with Hawking up in, a, up in, the, up in the library, up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And uh, so you had this sort of time capsule of American philosophy. In addition to that, you also had um, first editions uh, from the 17th and 18th century. So first edition Hobbes, first edition Descartes, first edition Locke, John Locke. All of these just hanging out on largely abandoned uh, shelves up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And so I went in and I was just sort of taken, taken aback, just flabbergasted by this. And... Um, over the course of two years, I enlisted some help, and the help that I enlisted was Carol, who was once my colleague and then became my friend and is now my wife um, or partner. And the story, why it's called American Philosophy, a love story, is it's a story, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a love affair with philosophy, but it's also simply um, a love story in a very conventional sense. It's the story of a person going through a relationship uh, that that is crumbling, and then trying to rethink what philosophy can teach you about reforming a relationship on the basis of freedom and love, um, and that's what sort of I discovered at the library. Now, your question: How did you how did you um, how did you come to the book? 
uh, has a better answer now. <laughs> so Carol, uh, so Carol said to me after we had gone through the library, she said, Hey, there might be a, there might be an actual, you know, you should write a little article about this, this discovery of the library. And that little article just, uh, you know, bloomed into, mm. um, personal reflections at first, but then, um, you know, a 270 page book. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting to hear you use that language because my next question was going to be, what, what is the hardest part? But when you say something like bloomed, it almost makes it sounds like, sound like it was just coming out of you. Like once you got started, you really were. It was. Into it. Yeah. And I mean, what's interesting about it is, um, first drafts come very quickly, hmm. I think. Uh, so the first draft of American philosophy, a love story was written in a little less than two months. And I thought that at the time I thought, oh, this is great. I should just send this off to my editor. Yeah, and that's why that's what I did. <laughs> and she sent it back to me and said it has to be completely rewritten. The editing process took a year and a half. Wow. So um, the first draft came very quickly. You're right; it just sort of flowed out. But God, Eileen. So Eileen Smith, my editor at FSG, sort of really walked me through um, and was incredibly patient with me. Um, as I sort of revised this book. Well, that's great. That's, yeah, that's, that's the key, right? Is going from, is, or maybe the key difficulty a lot of people have is going from that draft to something that's a polished book that, that everyone can enjoy. Because it, I think maybe the story in your head is often a little bit different than the story people need to, or the, the way other people perceive the that's story. Right. That's right. So that's, that's good. I kind of want to jump here. I had a question because I really found this book to be fascinating because I felt like a fly on the wall. It, it felt as if I was there in so many different occasions when you were at the library or, or elsewhere. And you mentioned that you, that you didn't really come up with the idea until late in, late in the process and you kind of wrote this after the fact. You know, how are you able to retain the details throughout that you use to really add a lot of, you know, color and flavor to the novel. Nice. Um, no, that's a great question. So two things. One, I, I was writing while I was there, but mm -hmm. sort of informally. So okay. I would keep a journal or I would make, um, I would make notes about what I was finding and even make notes about what I was seeing. Hmm. So, I mean, uh, West wind is one of those, I think sort of magical places that you come across that, um, reminds you that um, even things that pass away leave traces, remains behind. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was doing while I was there is reflecting on that. So for example, it, when things are completely destroyed, when your father, when your you know, estranged alcoholic father dies or when you go through a divorce or when some tragedy hits, what, what remains? And I think that um, Westwind was the type of place that gave, gives one hope that even if things are sort of on the verge of complete destruction, like, like a li library, like an old forgotten library up in New Hampshire, that something, is, something remains. Mm -hmm. and, um, and trying to figure out how that's meaningful. The remains are meaningful. So I was writing um, about that but I never thought that it would reach the level of an article or a book. So you had a personal journal that you were, that's you were kind of using. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Do you feel like that in general helps you to remember writing stuff down? Is that why you were doing it in the first place? I do. But I also think that a lot of authors, I know this is the case for a lot of authors is we work ourselves out over the page. So for example, uh, many novelists, uh, most uh, people who are writing memoir, uh, like it's it's a it's a process of figuring figuring yourself out on the page, and that's kind of what I think about writing now, or th think uh, that's how I think about writing now. And this book is a is very clearly that. Um, in other words, uh, when you read it, you get a sense, I hope, of a person working through existential issues, but also get a sense of somebody engaging in, uh, philosophical thinking, hmm. um, in a sort of as honest a way as, uh, as one could, or uh, that's not true. I mean, um, 
I mean, I, I, self-knowledge, I think, is partial, at best partial. But that's why we write, I think, is to sort of figure this out yeah. over the course of, you know, many days of writing. Yeah. Or a lifetime of writing. <laughs> right. It's a, good, uh, it's a good habit. It's a good practice. So we kind of already alluded to this, but the book is, is a really interesting combination of, of love story and kind of guide to American philosophy. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the interplay between the philosophers you chose to highlight and their philosophies that you spoke about and how that related to your story. Sure, absolutely. So um, the history of Western philosophy is the history, according to James, of a, um, a sort of deb- debate or battle of temperaments. And I had always been of a certain type of temperament that fit with certain types of philosophers. So, for example, in modern philosophy, modern philosophy being starting around 1600 and running through uh, the late 1700s, these philosophers, so Descartes, Hobbes, um, Kant, for example, Immanuel Kant, they all have a conception of a person that fit with my early notion of what a person is. And I'll just sort of, sort of briefly flesh it out. So Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, who wrote the Leviathan and whose first edition of Leviathan was sitting in Hawking's library, um, written in the 1650s. Um, Hobbes's Leviathan tells a story about human beings where uh, everybody is out for their own, individual, rational, self-interested. <laughs> Okay, um, and everybody is in a battle to the death. Okay, is deeply competitive. So life is nasty, brutish, and short, according to Hobbes. And this has always sort of resonated with me as a philosopher that life is you, you just pursue your own, it's nasty, brutish, and short. And any type of relationship we get into is a type of contractual one. It's, it's not, you know, at the end of the day, um, relationships are conveniences or our, uh, you know, uh, exchanges between two self-interested parties. It's very little surprise that this does not deliver one to a good relationship. And so I reached the point of divorce coming to the realization that modern philosophy really didn't, you know, uh, think that, that even though I had studied American philosophy that started in the 1820s and 1830s, I really hadn't taken their, their uh, lessons to heart. Mm-hmm. Because American philosophy it teaches us something different about human beings and the relationships they have with one another. It teaches two things. One, that human beings are radically free and that human beings can exercise their freedom in interpersonal relationships that are deeply meaningful apart from self-interest. So um, I think about Emer- Emerson's, and I mentioned this in the book, Emerson's essays, his most famous essay is probably Self-Reliance, which says uh, that you can exercise your freedom um, and that you should exercise your freedom and not not allow others to constrain your uh, freedom. But we oftentimes forget that Emerson intended this sort of uh, Promethean individualism to be tempered by another essay, which he calls Compensation. These are sister essays. And compensation says, no matter how free you are, you always enact your freedom in the context of others. That, um, that being with others is constitutive of a person. In other words, um, being with others creates us or makes us who we are. And that's something that I only learned at the library through the process of both rereading American philosophy, but then also the process of falling in love with Carol. One of the things you touch on several times throughout the book is how mainstream philosophy now tends to retreat into the ivory tower. It, it deals less with things that affect the day-to-day lives of people. And I'm just curious why you think this happened. What's going on here? Well, in the early part of the 20th century, William James writes an essay called The Ph.D. Octopus. Hmm. And in, in this essay, in this little lecture that James gives, he says that um, our obsession with credentials um, is going to narrow the focus of the love of wisdom. So, mm. uh, you know, every single PhD that anyone ever gets, whether it's a PhD in chemistry or biology, or it's, it's PhD for a reason, it's PH philosophy, doctor of philosophy. 
and James being the polymath that he was, in other words, being being able to be an artist and a philosopher, and he was the you know father of empirical psychology, and he was a physiologist at Harvard. He taught anatomy for a long time at Harvard. He could do all of these different things, and he saw that uh, philosophies, the discipline of philosophy, was being narrowed down or thinned down by virtue of our disciplinary constraints and the requirements that we would put on uh, professors to profess rather than to engage with the world. Hmm. And um, James was really worried about that, in fact. So um, I think that that's one, that's one reason why we see um, philosophy in the 20th century moving away from existential uh, questions like, is life worth living? Yeah, I wonder if that happens in other subject areas as well then it sort of it sort of speaks to maybe specialization which is something i think is happening everywhere i mean something that if you go back you think about someone like leonardo da vinci you know who touched on lots of different areas or maybe even someone like ben franklin who touched on lots of different areas throughout his life whereas now because we are such experts in so many different things maybe it's you really need to focus in on on one particular thing and that takes away from more, maybe the more general areas that just individual citizens people might be interested in right i mean is there a way to counter that how do we solve that problem no that's a great question um so it's interesting at the hawking library one of hawking's closest friends was a mathematician and philosopher by the name of alfred north whitehead and um in the midst of world war one uh whitehead's uh, son Eric dies and Whitehead immediately almost immediately um, gives a lecture called the aims of education which you wouldn't see the relationship between the dying of a son and a lecture called the aims of education easily but Whitehead in this uh, lecture says education is to be geared to two things expert knowledge which is the very specific disciplinary specific knowledge that we need um, but then also to what he calls culture. And culture is, for Whitehead, two things. It's activity of thought and the receptivity to humane feeling. And so Whitehead believes that whatever specific or very narrow knowledge, uh, whatever very narrow facts that we acquire in education, we need to learn how to um, apply them to a broad range of experiences. Mm -hmm. And... Um, allow a broad range of feelings to impact how we use those uh, specific facts. So it's a type of balance between um, the humanistic um, sort of holism, educational holism, or a broad notion of education, and what Whitehead sees as you know, the sort of specialization of knowledge. So it's, it's, it's learn your specialization, but don't forget, you know, your roots. Don't forget the, the broad parts of it all and trying to maybe a go back and apply right. that right now oh, that's interesting and so so that that leads into the next my next question which is you know you talk ab about the task of classical american philosophy and, and you write that it was to declare its intellectual independence while remaining firmly rooted in the distant past so why why do you think that is and you know do you do you think that's something we should be doing for ourselves you know uh, understanding and remaining connected to our past but also being our own independent selves and looking towards our own independent futures. Right. Well, yeah, I think personally that's a good, that's a good motto to hold to. Yeah. I mean, I think that whenever we think we can divorce ourselves from our past, uh, we run into serious problems. Um, and whenever we think that we're completely, completely root rooted in our past, we run into real problems. So American philosophy is often poo pooed as not having a history so as not having um, a basis in any long-term um, intellectual tradition. And that's just wrong. And that was something that I discovered um, most pointedly at the Hawking Library. So usually the story goes that American philosophers are so hell-bent on being original that their philosophy really is just a you know, mirror image of American exceptionalism. Um, it's that, you know, that th this is a special type of philosophy. It's American philosophy. 
But in fact, if we read the American philosophers carefully, if we read Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, William James, Jane Addams, uh, Josiah Royce, John Dewey, all of these thinkers are deeply, deeply invested in, um, in debating and sort of interacting with the history of philosophy in particular ways. So I think the task of philosophy, and life for that matter, is the appropriating of one's past in, the, in a way that can be creative for, for a meaningful future. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of the task of life. I mean, we're, we're not given choices about um, where we're born or uh, who our father is or who our uh, mother is, but we, we have the task in life of sort of um, carrying that past along in such a way that it can uh, create a meaningful future. And I think that that's what American philosophy is up to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that, yeah, that balance is key. Montaigne wrote, uh, and you highlighted in the book, marriage is like a cage. One sees the birds outside desperate to get in, and those inside equally desperate to get out. And I like to call this the grass is always greener problem. But uh, maybe talk about that for a second, why that was so poignant for you. Sure, yeah, I mean, that uh, resonated with me very clearly as I was exiting my first marriage. And I got married very young, um, and I was only 30, I was 30 years old when I discovered West Wind and started to go through a divorce. Um, And I think that Montaigne's comments, um, for many people, Montaigne's comment for many people applies we think that things are going to be sorted out when we get married just by virtue of being married and we really want to get married. But then when we get into the marriage, we discover, like Emerson says, my giant goes with me wherever I go. It's not like something radically changes when you like put the ring on or walk down the aisle if you do that sort of thing. But rather, it's the case that you... Um, um, Sometimes you just want to get out. As soon as you get in, you're like, "Well, this isn't. This wasn't what it, what it's what, what it was cracked up to be." Um, and the problem is, is that you sort of misunderstand what I think long-term relationships are about. And that's the process of realizing that um, love is not. Uh, Thomas Merton says, "Love is not a package. It's not something to be exchanged. It's not." Um, it's not this mutually beneficial exchange, a la Hobbes, hmm. um, which I think still applies in our uh, culture. Uh, it's something different. It's an enlivening, Merton says it's an enlivening of life. Love is an enlivening of life that sometimes uh, wanes, sometimes waxes, and you have to be sort of patient with the wa- waning and waxing. Hmm. So speaking of love, uh, you wrote that you know, after you discovered West End, you know, in, in the following months, you started cheating on your wife with a room full of books. So why was Hawking's library so important to you? Well, it was a sort of safe space. I mean, it was a place where I could get away and um, it was a place where I could sort out what I really believed in. And Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, asks, like, what do you what do you love? Like at the end of the day, like, uh, I mean, the, one of the most important questions in life is, is what do you love? What do you adore? And sometimes you can't answer that question when you're surrounded by others. Sometimes you just need to sort it out in a moldy, uh, non-winterized library on 400 acres in the middle of New Hampshire. Um, so you just need to get away. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason is, um, I don't know how to explain this exactly, but I never felt like I was completely alone. I felt, I, I never felt like I was completely alone at Westwind. Even before Carol came to Westwind with me, I felt like this place was actually, um, I won't say haunted, but it was, it was, um, there were, I ne- let's just say I never felt alone. I felt more with people at Westwind than I, than I did in my everyday life in Boston, which, which is pretty weird considering yeah. that it's a, it's a city. Yeah. But it was that it, you found the connection, right? You, know, you, you found that, which, which is important. You know, once you found the library, you dedicated yourself to 
preserving the books. And this was a, a big part of the book was you you going through the library and, and sorting it all out and try, trying to figure out what was going to happen with all these incredibly rare and, and important books. You know, why, why do you think that was so important? So you could have just found the library and just kept it as your own little library and shown up and read books and hung out and, and whatever. But you, you made a decision that you were going to preserve it somehow, get the books elsewhere, do something with them. So why did you make that decision and why was the preservation process meaningful? Sure. I mean, I think the part of philosophy that really struck me when I found West Wind is philosophy at its best, and I say this in the book, philosophy at its best is supposed to help us see why our lives that are seemingly so fragile and ephemeral might actually mean something. Um, and it's to preserve what is both noble and worth preserving. It, it's, it's to preserve and figure out what's, what's worthy of preservation about us as human beings. So notions of virtue or um, notions of duty, uh, notions of reality, truth and goodness. Like these are, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, the bread and butter of the history of Western philosophy. So um, to, to your question about how, why to save these very old books, and they were old books, books, right? And they weren't in great condition. They were on the verge of, you know, complete disintegration in this library. And um, there was the sense that you should not allow a first edition John Locke's Two Treaties on Government, 1691, uh, to be torn apart or to be completely lost. It was like books used to be fragile little bodies and regarded as fragile little bodies. The corpus, right? The corpus. And um, I came to appreciate that there's, th that there's a sort of objectness to books that's um, sort of sacred, um, especially very old books. It proves that things can sort of remain or that things can, you know, stick around. And I was really intent on seeing at least these, a few of these books stick around for the next generation. Now, one of the sad things about that process of preservation is that they had to be moved off site. So it's, uh, I mean, William Ernest Hawking, his son Richard Hawking, the Hawking granddaughters, or uh, William Ernest Hawking's granddaughters, uh, they all thought that it was very important to keep this time capsule intact. The problem with keeping a time capsule intact in the 21st century, however, is many people don't think that it's important to keep time, time capsules intact. Um, and Hawking had tried to place his books with Harvard, had tried to place his books with multiple institutions without any success. Yeah, and that's it's interesting to me that you brought up how people aren't so interested in keeping time capsules together anymore. I was You don't talk about this much in the book, but I was curious about what your thoughts are how about how preservation itself is changing as we kind of move into the digital age and you know there it becomes much more trivial to keep things but also much more trivial to throw them away these we can with a click of a mouse make decisions about you know whether we're going to delete an entire paper we wrote without submitting it or we're going to you know save it online in the cloud forever you know you know how do you feel about all that what 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 is there a future person are they going to stumble into a digital library what and make these decisions how what's going to happen i, I mean and what i think's interesting one of the things that i found interesting about writing this book is just thinking about will this type of book be possible in right. 150 years and i think the answer is probably maybe not um and i think that that's a real loss and mm. it's also a real loss with how we read i mean um if we think about the rise of electronic books and audiobooks I mean, books used to be something that you lived with. And I mean physically lived with. Like, uh, the entire Hawking Library is just windows and books. There are no walls. It's all books. It's all bookshelves. So the entire room is, is a bookshelf uh, and windows. And it's, it's occupying the same space with books and artifacts, I think, that actually... Um, will be lost in the 20 you know 21st century and beyond and i think that that's a real uh shame uh 
I'm sure that we get things with technology, but I think we also risk losing things. Mm. Right. Winners and losers. So you talk a bit about Viktor Frankl and, and the existential vacuum and how that relates to Thoreau's contention that we need very little in life. So I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. Can you maybe talk about that for a bit and then expand a little bit? Sure. Um, so Viktor Frankl says uh, a number of things in Man's Search for Meaning. It's a wonderful book. Um, Frankl is an existentialist, but he's writing while he's in the concentration in a concentration camp during World War II. And Frankl says, um, he says, man can, everything can be taken from a man except one thing, his ability to respond to a really bad situation. Um, In other words, even in really bad situations, human beings still have some freedom. And I think that that is actually an underlying message in many American philosophers. So, for example, we see in Emerson when his son died, um, or and when his wife died, his first wife died, um, Emerson sort of holding the idea that some sort of possibility is able to be negotiated even in this tragic loss. With Thoreau, I think the same same issue is at hand. Uh, so too with William James, with the question, "Is life worth living?" Like none of these philosophers are uh, strangers to crisis nor to real loss, and so I think Frankel's pushing on something and he he's saying we are radically free even in the worst of times which means that we are both free to respond but also responsible radically responsible to respond in a way that we can live with james thought that we are free uh, for such a short time and (laughs) and he wrote that there are often better things to do than philosophy and I, i thought that was interesting you know, obviously he was all over the place and into lots of things. And, and we've, you know, spoken a little bit about the ivory tower and, and, and all that. And I thought that was a very interesting comment because, you know, there's an endless choice that we have now. As we were talking about the digital age. There's an endless choice of things to do all the time. And I guess I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about you know, focus and, and what we pay attention to and what we spend our time doing. And if you had any thoughts on, you know, whether we can get focused on the, on good things or bad things or whether just by deciding they become good or bad, that makes sense. It does. Yeah. So, um, this comes out in both moments of American pragmatism in James, but then also in European existentialism, which is when you are radically free, you are radically, like I just said, you are radically responsible for your actions. And now the question is, how do you exercise your, uh, how do you exercise your freedom? How do you pick? I mean, there are so many options open. How do you pick? And I think that um, for James, there were some right answers. Okay, um, the existential the existentialists. Uh, won't follow James all the way here, but there are some, there are some, uh, ways of thinking for James. James says, um, in a certain blindness in human beings, an essay that he gives near the end of his life, he says, um, one of the tasks of philosophy, but also of life is to imagine things otherwise, to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to expand our own sort of self, uh, beyond the hermetically sealed bubble that I oftentimes think is just quote unquote my life. And I think that he's right about that. I don't think he, he's not going to give you any particular instructions about the duties of doing so, but he gestures to the possibilities that might accompany this type of uh, relationship or this type of extension into the lives of others. So that's one thing. This was a really personal book and, and, uh, and you said some really interesting things about about yourself, and and I think especially things that we often don't take the time to consider. And so, an example of that is when you wrote that you never had malevolent intentions when it comes to others, but you you sort of say, well, it was just that you didn't really care too much about them. You just didn't 
really spend the time to care. And you also wrote that some sometimes you thought of people as things to be avoided or managed as opposed to people like yourself with inner lives. And that really resonated with me because I think that happens to everybody, you know, including myself, where it becomes really easy to just kind of keep walking past that person or, or ignore the person that is trying to get your attention in one way or another in life. I would be curious to know what you think about empathy and, and how important empathy, empathy is in our modern world and how you overcame some of those things that you raised. Sure. So, I mean, with Hobbes, um, with Hobbes, I think the uh, theme is, he says that, that human beings are non-tuistic. Non-tuistic means non-other regarding. It's, again, it's not that they hate each other. They just don't regard each other. Um, and they certainly regard their own interests as far more important than someone else's, right? So I think that American philosophers um, sort of challenge that from, uh, I mean, from, from Emerson straight through John Dewey in the 1960s. So 130 years of challenging that, that position. And I think when it comes to empathy, the American philosophers, so there's this seeming tension between the two themes that I bring out in American philosophy, freedom on the one hand and love on the other. Okay, these seem at first glance like they're mutually exclusive. So for example, how can you be free if you're tied to someone else, right? And the trick for American philosophers is always to figure out how to maintain individuality or individual freedom while at the same time being deeply interconnected with others. That's, that's like the tension that sort of drives much of American philosophy from Emerson's compensation and self-reliance. Now, a couple things show up here in terms of your question about empathy. So um, if you think about Henry David Thoreau, he's a loner, okay? His best friends are um, the children who would follow him through the Concord woods uh, while he picked huckleberries. It, adults thought that he was a bit of a crank and a bit of a misanthrope. Uh, so you could say, Keg, what do you mean? Like, what do you, how, could you, how could you say that American philosophy is about empathy and togetherness when Thoreau is such a loner? Like Emerson sometimes seems like such a loner. James sometimes seems like such a loner. And the answer is, is that sometimes you need um, a bit of distance to maintain your individual you know, individual thoughts or your individual actions. That's one way of thinking. So there, there's the shuttling between isolation or let's just call it solitude, not, um, yeah, not isolation, but solitude and togetherness. Mm -hmm. There's this constant shuttling that the American philosophy suggests. Um, additionally, Thoreau, I think, is especially good on saying that love and compassion isn't always the easiest thing. In fact, when you love someone else, uh, you're bringing your freedom in, into sort of such close proximity with someone else that there's, there's going to arise tension, okay? He says, Diogenes, the ancient cynic, says, like, I only bite my friends, mm. right? I only yeah. bite the, and I think Thoreau is exactly the same way. He was very biting at times, and, but he, you, you learn to bite your friends, and um, it's a type of relationship that is uh, based on honesty, trust, and risk. And mm. these, these three things, I think, are what American philosophy sort of, you know, encourages at certain points. Um, it's kind of like your friends are the ones that you know can take it. True. And to be a friend uh, is to be willing to go to battle with somebody yeah. and fight it out. And, and not that's just something, walk away. And that's really something. And not just walk away, I think. And that's, that's a lesson that I learned in the process of going through West Wind. Mm. Like, it, you fight it out. You do not just walk away. So you wrote that, uh, that being punished for telling a lie makes sense, but being sacrificed on the altar of truth seemed cruel. So I liked that line. Can you maybe expand on that and give an example or two? Yeah, sure. I mean, so when you're going through a relationship um, and you come to a point where you think, 
uh, geez, this relationship's really not working out, right? Um, there are ways to dissemble, to sort of, um, to get around the question of whether the relationship is going well or not. Um, you can sort of tell these white lies or convenient truths, um, or you can be really brutal about it, okay? And you can just say, this is not working out for X, Y, and Z reason. And um, there are ways, especially in, in family life or in the life of friends, where telling, telling the truth is in, is in fact, is punishable. <laughs> hmm. and, um, and I think that those are, at the time I was going through trying to figure out how to, how to tell my now ex-wife that this is over and tell her family that we were all, you know, that we were incredibly close, but, um, trying to, trying to be honest with them about what was happening. And, um, that did not, that was not easy. That was not an easy process. And, um, in part I realized that, um, I'm going back to Frederick Nietzsche cause I'm writing a book now about Nietzsche, but, um, he says we have to be uh, willing to ask the forbidden questions and uh, we have to be willing to sort of address very uncomfortable truths. And I think that that's, tr I think that's the case. Um, and so I guess that's the, the quote that you were wondering about. We, we spoke a bit about personal responsibility and there's a really interesting discussion in the book. I thought about chance and you, talk about chance as it relates to Pierce and Pierce's design and chance. So what did Pierce mean when he said chance was an opening for human beings to explore their will uh, and a space to be sort of personally responsible for their actions? Chance is, there are two meanings of chance that Pierce plays with. There is chance as the sort of random occurrence, the metaphysical condition of random occurrences. Um, things that sort of show up like uh, non-winterized libraries in the middle of a life that's going to hell. Like that's a chance. I mean, it's just happened. And I, I oftentimes think like, what, what would, it, what would life be like had I not met Bun Nickerson? Like would Carol and I have gotten together? Would, would, uh, you know, like what would have happened? So that's one way that you can think about chance is just random occurrence. But American philosophers, and especially a woman um, by the name of L. Lyman Cabot, who I had read and who was read and wrote about before going to Westwind, L. Lyman Cabot, anyway, she said, um, chance is always my chance. So in other words, it's, so these random occurrences that happen in life um, create a sort of space in order for us to exercise our freedom, okay, or to exercise ourselves. To, to insert ourselves into something that might not have uh, been otherwise. So, um, so for example, I could have not gotten into Bunt Nickerson's car, or I could not have tested the door of uh, the library, or, but these are all choices that you make, or at least actions that you take, right? Um, and so Peirce was interested in the relationship between this metaphysical idea of random occurrences and the way that it creates a sort of opening for us to live free and meaningful lives. Because if mm -hmm. you think about your life, I bet that most of the most meaningful things of your li lives, or your life, um, happened at a sort of random occurrence, or oftentimes happens at a random occurrence, um, at a juncture that you yeah. pick. No, that's, that's a great point. I mean, that's probably true for everyone across all, all moments. I mean, just things like, and I often go back to this sort of thing too. It's like, what if I had picked a different college to go to, you know, like that everything else would have changed all, you know, my friends, my career, you know, just where I lived and it's just every little, little decisions here or there have radical implications down the line. You, you were taught to ignore the personalities that gave rise to philosophical arguments. Um, but you wrote that this was sort of impossible for American philosophy. So I was curious why you thought that is, and also why, why we tend to do that so much in the first place, whether for philosophy or anything else. I mean, you can think about the arts, and often it's very difficult for us to separate out, you know, the maybe personal feelings of an artist from the art that they created. Right. 
So, I mean, there's this um, term known as the biographical fallacy, which is the idea that uh, you commit a fallacy every time you um, try to understand a theory or to understand a piece of art by virtue of the life that produced it. And I just think, um, in some cases, that's simply wrong. Um, if for the following, for, for the reason that, like, when you think about Walden, we, this was sort of where we started the interview, is that in Walden, the I is never omitted. Uh, like, the personal is never omitted. Um, and I think that many times philosophy is re is a response to particular cultural and personal situations such that the philosophy can't be understood without addressing those those cultural and personal situations um, and I th so like when Hegel says that um, philosophy is an uh, is sort of an outgrowth of culture I don't think that you can understand philosophy without the culture and the culture of the person uh, who's uh, producing it so I've recently become really interested in Nietzsche and or I mean I've always been interested in Nietzsche but I'm uh, writing more about him now um, and Arthur Schopenhauer uh, two German philosophers where it's very clear that their philosophy is a response in some ways to their biographical situations that is definitely the case with James when he gives the um, issue is life worth living or rather when he gives the lecture is life worth living it's a response to the fact that he's been what he calls sick sold for much of his life in other words, he's been dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, he doesn't give a straight yes. He gives a maybe. It depends on the liver. So I wanted to talk about this idea of loving care and, and to go back to Purse real quick. And, and you wrote about gardening and how gardening was Purse's favorite example of loving care. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he said that because the results can be influenced but not controlled or guaranteed, and there's no sort of predestiny attached and that gives gardening a, a very certain purpose. So I really like that idea, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and maybe think about areas where we could find that in our lives yeah. for those of us in cities without gardens, maybe. Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> yeah, of course. So I mean, Purse, um, uh, Purse was also a complete curmudgeon, okay, for most of his life. He lived a very, very tragic life. He. Um, could never hold down a university position, even though he was brilliant. Um, his friends oftentimes, he, he, he would self, you know, he was an expert of self-sabotage. Um, he would sabotage relationships and friendships. Um, but at the end of his life, oddly enough, he begins to write about love. And he begins to write about um, what he calls evolutionary love. And I'm going to just boil this down very quickly. He's not talking about the romantic love that we have on Valentine's Day or about this exchange. Mm -hmm. He's talking about what he calls agape. Agape is the um, sort of, um, it's a very old notion, um, but it's more, more, more uh, recently, it's sort of the Christian notion of divine love, which many people's eyes sort of glaze over and they're like, oh, I can't figure out what divine love means. But, uh, but Peirce actually boils it down pretty nicely for us. He says um, that agape is the willingness and the ability to, to love even that which is most antagonistic to us. Hmm. And I think that's a really trenchant uh, idea, especially for today. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think it's a trenchant idea for city dwellers, especially. I mean, when you walk down the street and you pass somebody who doesn't, you know, who, uh, who's asking you for money. Uh, this is not an assault. They're not assaulting you. Uh, can you actually muster the ability to treat them like a human being instead of simply an object? That's what Purse is up to. Um, and, and, and I mean, I think especially in our current political climate, like it's, things are so divisive. And I think Purse's notion of agape sort of like keys us into the fact that even that which is most antagonistic can be loved. Um, and the love that Purse is suggesting, and I think you gesture toward this in um, the gardening example that I used, it's a type of um, attentive care to someone that allows them to flourish on, in their own terms or on their own terms. Um, it's not constrictive. It's not um, overly demanding. 
it's a type of give and take that allows you to flourish or allows someone else or some other thing to flourish on their own terms. And maybe speaking about that, Wallace talks about how we're, we're not fated to be alone uh, and because we have this rare chance to venture outside to others. And you mentioned this in the book kind of right after you found out um, your colleague Carol was, was also getting a divorce. So you had this rare chance and we talked about chance for a, a second and, and how what we do with those chances we have can make differences in our lives. So what kind of made you take advantage of this particular rare chance, which I think really is what a lot of the book is boiling down to. It's kind of this moment when you've got the library going on, you've got Carol going on, Carol comes back from this trip, and you find out this momentous thing, and, and you make a big decision based on this rare chance in your life. Right. I mean, part of the book, and I say this in the book, part of the book is about unrequited love. So, I mean, I fell in love with Carol well before I think she, I mean, she fell in love with me. And that's quite obvious to me. Quite obvious to her, too. Um, so, the, the part of, in, in part, it was already, uh, the opening just had to happen, or didn't mm-hmm. have to happen. But that's all it took for me to be able to venture into the relationship or for us to venture into the relationship. Had she not come back from uh, Tuscany, uh, where she was visiting um, with her family, um, had she not come back from Italy and said, I'm, I too am getting a divorce, we still, I, I'm absolutely sure we still would be co- just colleagues yeah. or good friends. So I think that that's pretty... Um, so you yeah. were just kind of ready I was ready. You were ready. Okay. I was ready. So that's interesting because it means that you had, maybe you'd even thought about something like that beforehand and you would kind of run through, okay, you know, this is, if I ever get my chance, like I am in. Yes. You know, like you, whatever that's absolutely the case. Yeah. That is absolutely the case. Fair enough. And this is another really, really great line I liked. You talked about Jane Adams and, uh, she wrote that the things that frighten us the most are the things that deserve the most attention. Mm -hmm. And wow, I thought that was so important and so meaningful. So maybe talk about something that frightens you now or frightened you in the past and how you think this idea might have helped. Good. Let me put a little, um, let me say just a little bit about Adams because she's usually part of this book. Um, is about women in philosophy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, three chapters are really about women in philosophy. And Adams is oftentimes a neglected figure who, sh- who does not deserve to be neglected. So Jane Adams is the founder of Hull House um, in Chicago, um, a contemporary of John Dewey's who is oftentimes regarded as a, you know, American philosopher. And Adams is oftentimes just regarded as a social reformer and not as a philosopher. But to my way of thinking, she's a full-fledged philosopher. She's just doing applied philosophy, uh, trying to figure out how to build communities in Chicago. Um, but she's also a writer. I mean, she's prolific in terms of her writing. So Adam starts Hull House, Hull House after going to London um, and visiting, visiting what's known as Toynbee Hall in London, which was a social reform um, house uh, in London that served the workers in London um, in the 19th century, uh, in the late 19th century. And she she's basically um, exposed to a type of poverty um, in London uh, that initially scares the hell out of her. Mm. And so the comment that I made in the book that those things that frighten us the most are precisely the things that we need to look at is what she does and has the courage to do in London and then in Chicago. I mean, uh, she said, I was scared, but I overcome that. I overcame that fear and I faced it. Um, in other words, most of her life was spent dealing with the small atrocities that happen in um, uh, underprivileged areas and um, small and large atrocities. So, uh, your question was, what scares me and, um, and how am I dealing with it? So, that's a great, that is a very good question. So, um, most immediately, I'm deeply concerned about um, the state of politics in the United States. 
And so, um, and I am actually scared and, um, I'm trying my best to figure out ways to confront those things that scare me. So that's a straightforward example in terms of literature, um, or in terms of writing, I'm concerned about being a bad parent. I mean, that's a, that's a, a real issue, uh, for me. My father was, didn't give great role models. My mother did, but my father really didn't. He showed very clearly that you could really mess up. And so I'm worried about it. And so what I'm doing is actually writing a book about um, Nietzsche and parenthood right now hmm. that's sort of written in the same memoir style um, that addresses some of those fears um, because it's not easy and you can mess up and I'm, I'm scared. And so, like I said, I use writing to sort of work myself over the page and that's what I'm doing now. Hmm. It's really interesting. I like that idea. And now I'm uh, looking forward to the book as well, because I thought you, you combined the two very well here. So I can't wait. Near the end of the book, you talk about, uh, you talk about the loss of your father uh, a bit, and you talk about how his absence drove you to philosophy. You know, you were kind of trying to find answers and hoping that those philosophers would explain themselves in the world and, and you would get something out of that. So do you feel like that, that desire was, was realized or, or how, how did that go? Um, I think that most of my life I've been looking for sort of like father figures to sort of stand in for an absence. And I think mm -hmm. absence is really present. I, weirdly enough. Um, and so you look to the fathers of philosophy to sort of sort your problems out. And that's what I did, uh, for much of my early you know, career, you know, my, my, my time in philosophy. Um, I don't think that's the best way to go about philosophy. Um, but I think that many people do do that. Um, not just looking for fathers, but looking for guidance period. And so I think to answer your question, um, it is definitely the case that the fathers and mothers and founders of American philosophy helped me sort out, um, the death of a father. And it helped me sort out a life. That's true. What I've what I've discovered since then, since writing this book, is that um, the quest for definitive answers, and I gesture to this at the end of the book, the quest for definitive answers is one that uh, often is not suited for beings like us. In other words, we're not gonna find definitive answers hmm. um, and so I'm still I guess looking um, and questioning about the methods of how to look like how how, how is it best to search for answers uh, what sort of answers fit and this oh. I guess is what's uh, what I'm addressing in the, the next book that's interesting reminds me what's that uh, what's that line from the matrix she says Trinity says something to Neo like it's it's not the answers to the questions that drive us Right. Something like that. I think that's very similar to pulling a random science fiction movie. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the past of American philosophy, and we've talked a lot about how it's hanging out in the ivory tower a bit now. Uh, what are your thoughts about the future? What do you think is going to happen with American philosophy going forward? Mm. So, I mean, I think that um, there have been many times... Uh, my friend Clancy Martin uh, said this to me. He said, there are many times in the history of philosophy where philosophers have had to stake a great deal on their thinking. And I think we're entering one of those periods right now um, where philosophers might be called on to stake a great deal on their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I hope that's the case. Um, and I hope that philosophers, professional philosophers and people who are philosophers but who aren't professors will stand up and do that sort of thinking people who can stand up and stake something on their thoughts um so i'm i'm hopeful um for the future of philosophy philosophy oftentimes um flourishes in time times of political and cultural upheaval and i'm hoping that we have the people to do that hmm I like that. It's a very hopeful message. It's good to hold on to in these times. 
So that sort of wraps up my main questions. I like to have a little fun thunder round at the end just to, just to wrap it up. What do you think? You ready? Sounds good. We'll do it. Let's we'll, do it. Then we'll be done. Yeah, let's do okay. it. Okay. So, so uh, first off, what is your favorite food and or drink? Um, my favorite food is uh, any type of pasta, and my favorite drink mm. is still and unfortunately beer. That is, <laughs> that's okay. I myself drink beer. Totally acceptable. And I think we're lucky to be drinking beer now. Right, we have the largest selection of beers ever. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's. So, I mean, just think infinite, about infinite possibilities. Infinite possibilities with beer and, and with pasta, to be fair. So, and this is a, it's funny because I asked this question to everyone, but uh, from the book, I may already know the answer, but you could surprise me. But what's your favorite place you've ever been? West Wind is it's right up West, there. Yeah, it's okay. right up there. Okay. But the second, my second favorite place <laughs> is. Um, where the second book is actually going to be set, which is um, ah. Sils Maria, Switzerland. Oh, interesting. It's going to be called Hiking with Nietzsche. Ooh, okay. That's exciting. I have never been in Switzerland, so I look forward to that. And so this is my favorite question. And if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? <laughs> oh, my God. I know. And suffering. And suffering. <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> that's what you would go for straight I away. I, I mean, end point, end senseless suffering. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, an interesting yeah. distinction. Yeah, it is. Some suffering is, is meaningful. Yes, some suffering. Yeah, that's why I had to go back. But yeah, I mean, end senseless suffering would be right up there. Okay. That's a powerful magic wand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you're the wizard. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. Uh, the book again, American Philosophy, A Love Story by John Kegg. Uh, just an amazing book. And I would really, really recommend you reading it yourself. It, it goes much more in depth and is a wonderful read. So thanks so much, John, for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. Mm-hmm.